Genesis chapter 16. We're going to start off by reading through. We've been going through uh, the saga of, of Abram and Sarai and seeing how God has been bringing them on this journey of faith, how he called them out of their homeland and promised them uh, an heir, great nations, uh, great land, all of these things, but it didn't happen right away, did it? It didn't happen that next week, that mu- next month, or even that next year. Uh, time kept transpiring, and we see uh, this last chapter in 15, we left off, where God came to Abram and reiterated his promises to him, and matter of fact, officially established a covenant with him and with his descendants, uh, both a physical and spiritual covenant, one of which we are the beneficiaries that we talked about. And so we're coming kind of on the heels of chapter 15, where God had encouraged Abram, reminded him of those promises, reaffirmed through a covenant uh, that he would be blessed, that all nations of the earth, earth would be blessed through him, through his, through his uh, children, or through his child, through his heir, and that that heir would be truly his heir from him and Sarai, not, not someone from a servant of his house, uh, not something he would have to fabricate or make happen, that God would indeed fulfill his promise, but in his time, not in Abram's time, not in Sarai's time. And uh, so that's what we, we left off with that encouragement and that official establishing of that covenant. And now we're picking up in chapter 16. Some time has gone by, and now we're going to see uh, Sarai and Abram struggle a little bit again struggle with trusting in the promises of God, God's timing, God's sovereignty. We're going to uh, hear about the time frame that has gone by. And uh, they're going to come up with plan B. And we'll see how that works out. So why don't we pick up, we're going to go and read through the chapter together and then go back through and, and see what we can learn from it. Chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be the wife, his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress mistress, and submit yourself into her hand. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lai Roy, 
uh, observed that it is between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So quite a story. And it's kind of sad in some senses to me to read this right after finishing chapter 15 where God gives such a firm promise and covenant to Abram and Sarai. But we're not told exactly how much time has gone by uh, since that. But um, we see that Sarah's struggling with trusting God here. And it's interesting as we read through what's going on. So let's pick up in verse 1. Read through it in a little more detail. It says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So who's this maidservant? We mentioned before, if you remember, a few chapters back, uh, back in chapter 12, uh, when Genesis, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Genesis, in Genesis, when Abram went down to Egypt because of the famine, and remember he told Pharaoh, uh, this is my sister, and Pharaoh, because she was so beautiful and everything, Pharaoh dealt very well with Abram, gave him all kinds of gifts and wealth. And it says in there that he gave him sheep, oxen, male and female servants. And so it's likely that Hagar came out of that time when they were down in Egypt and then left, they, and they brought those servants with them. Uh, she probably uh, was, became part of their household at that point. But it's interesting as we read through here, we're going to see some serious blame shifting going on. Um, on Sarai's part. First of all, we're going to see as we read through this that Sarai blames God for not allowing her to have a child. And then she goes on to blame Abram for the entire situation and tries to shift the blame there. And it's interesting what's going on. It's a kind of a classic scenario we see throughout Scripture when people are caught in sin or when people reap what they have sown. Um, so it says, she had no children, but she had this Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And verse 2, so Sarah said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And, and so notice the choice of words here. And, it's, and, you, and if you remember in the last time that Abram had a bit of a lapse of faith, uh, Abram had already picked out a servant that was already born in his house to possibly be his heir. Now, Sarah is kind of taking that a step further and saying, here, produce an heir that's actually at least of your bloodline through this servant. But notice her choice of words here. She says, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. It's interesting. Did Sarai have the ability to bear children before and now God had stopped her? Well, no, no. If we remember before, Sarah was barren. Sarah had this physical infirmity. And again, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's hurt, where there's sickness, where things aren't perfect. And Sarah's condition was clearly the result of that. But God promised them that they would have an heir despite her condition. And Sarah kind of paints this picture like God is withholding something from her. Like God is, is preventing her from having children. She kind of places this, she kind of hints at this blame towards God that he's not allowing her to have children. But it says, perhaps we can obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. You know, there's a big lesson to be learned here for us men and for women, quite honestly. But we can read back in Genesis 3.17 when God spoke to Abram, or Adam after the fall. And he goes through and he speaks to the serpent, he speaks to Eve, and he speaks to Adam. And if you remember what he said to Adam, said, because you heeded the voice of your wife and you ate the fruit, you disobeyed, 
took some bad advice. Therefore, this curse, a curse that is the ground for your sake and all these things. And we see this same phrase repeated here, Abram heeded the voice of his wife. And we see throughout the Old Testament and throughout history, it's been the repeated fall of man to heed bad counsel uh, from, from women who uh, you know, have led them astray. It's kind of the classic man's weakness. And I think women need, would do well to realize what power they have over men. Uh, but you know what? I think for both women and men, in this scenario, we see both in Adam and Eve's case, we see in Abram and Sarai's case, we see Samson, we see all these people throughout history where because of bad advice, not necessarily from the wife, but also from the husband, but our spouse can be our greatest ally, our greatest source of wisdom and encouragement, or sometimes our greatest downfall. And we have to be cautious in how we encourage one another and how we, uh, uh, the ideas we give each other, the advice we give each other, and we have to remember that the person that's closest to us still is second to God, still is second to what God's word would say. The, the instruction he would give us, the words of wisdom in his word, his established word. And it's just like when Jesus said how uh, to follow him, we needed to, uh, in our love for him and our effort to follow him, our relationship with our, our, our family should be almost as hate, counted as hatred. And the contrast he's simply making there is he comes first. His word comes first. His wisdom, his, his commands come first. And as much as I love my wife and I treasure her wisdom and she's uh, definitely saved me from many things and encouraged me and helped me in so many ways, um, we both have to be cautious in making sure we compare everything with God's word and that we always make that where the final decision comes from. And we see that this has been the fall already right here in Genesis. We're not very far along in scripture. And twice now we've seen someone heed the, heed the advice of their spouse and, and, and at the price of forsaking the command of God, and it caused big problems. So he heeded his wife's instruction, and it says in verse 3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So we're given this glimpse, first of all, uh, it's been 10 years. So we know how long it's been. 10 years ago, God had originally called Abram out of the land that he was in to come and check out the promised land. And he gave him these promises, the promise of the land, of the heir. It's been 10 years. And so I can certainly understand to a degree how they could be struggling in their faith. But 10 years have gone by. But this is kind of a crazy thing to think about. For me, it's unfathomable to think of, of my wife bringing someone else to me out of desperation for having children and go, here, take her as your wife so we can have kids. That's not going to happen. I can tell you that. And I, I don't think that would ever happen in our culture today. Uh, it's hard for us to understand, but back in that day and time, having an heir was critical. It was everything. Uh, it, it culturally, uh, passing on your name uh, was you know, sort of the epitome of accomplishment and, and what you strive for. And for them, especially with this promise God had given them, you could see that they're somewhat desperate. They want to make sure this promise comes to pass. But it's pretty crazy to think that Sarai would make such a suggestion in the context of our culture now. But if I can remind you of Genesis 12, going back a few chapters, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram departed. And it says that he was 75 years old at that time. And so it's 10 years later. He's 85. And this is what's transpiring. And so picking up in verse 4, it says, So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So now, because Hagar has a child on the way, she's, going, she's kind of gloating. She's kind of rubbing it in Sarah's face, and she's, she's hanging that over her head. She's giving her a hard time. And so Sarai says to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. And so she's kind of pointing the finger at Abram, going, What do you think you're doing taking my bad advice? Come on. You should have known better. You should have known better. May God be your judge. I know it's shocking. I, mean, I don't know what I, what I would like to know really is what exactly did Sarah I think would happen in doing in, in doing this? That uh, she wouldn't have a baby. Maybe it would give her additional comfort seeing that the servant didn't have a child. I don't know, but it seems pretty predictable to me. But you know, there's a verse in Galatians chapter six that illustrates this principle. Sarah's now upset. She's angry. Her problem just got worse. Her situation just got worse because of this decision she made to try and fulfill God's promises and plan through her procedures. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And Sarai's kind of reaping what she's sown now. She's got this trouble. She's even more frustrated than before. The fact that she's barren is now has a spotlight on it because her servant is about to have a baby now. And it's because she thought she could fulfill God's promises and plan through her methods. She thought she could step in and just go, let's just fix this. Isn't that classic of how we work sometimes? God tells us what he wants to do. He gives us a vision for something. And then we go in and do it for him and mess it all up. We go in and jump the gun or we're not patient. Or we try and do it our own way. We forget that we need to continue in the way we began, which is by, by his spirit and according to his lead. And we have another example of doing God's work man's way in Numbers chapter 20 that I want to read to you real quick because this really highlights this issue. There's some inherent dangers when we seek to do God's work our way. Let me read this story to you from Numbers 20. It's one we're all familiar with. Numbers 20, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So, so far they're doing good. Followed the first two steps. And then he said to them, so Moses said to the children of Israel, Hear now, you rebels. We, must we bring water out for you from this rock? And then Moses lifts up his hand and strikes the rock twice. And then water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, 
you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So Moses and Aaron, God had shown them a way to provide water for the congregation. And they went about it completely the wrong way. God still, God still granted what he said he would do. He still allowed the water to come forth. And God still watered the, the congregation and the animals. But what happened? They utterly misrepresented God to the nation of Israel. You know, James 1 reminds us that the wrath of man does not accomplish or produce the righteousness of God. So there's four main dangers I want to highlight for you real quick. Four points I want to make about this concept, about doing God's work in the flesh, about attempting to do the, the work of God or do things for God by our own plans and procedures. First of all, we see here in this story in Numbers, we can mis- misrepresent God's character and his heart. When we go out and endeavor to do things on our own strength or by our own wisdom, we're going to miss it. Inherently, we're going to. God's ways are higher than ours. Amen? He, does, he, know, he, do, he knows far more than we do. And chances are we're going to misrepresent God's character and heart. I would think of a classic example of, of that church, and, I, and I'm based on the name, and it's probably better that I don't say the name. But uh, there's a church that has is, is made it their mission to make sure that gay, all gay people know that God hates them and is going to damn them to hell. And, and that uh, you know, it paints this completely a terrible picture of, of who God is. Uh, they protest uh, on the streets. They throw things at them. As a matter of fact, they even go to places uh, where there's funerals for war veterans and they, and they uh, protest at those funerals because they think uh, that God hates them because they fought in a war. I mean, they're just horribly, horribly misrepresenting God to people. And what they may be saying in its premise might be true. Yes, God doesn't like murder. Yes, God in his word does not approve of the homosexual lifestyle. We know that. That's true. But does God want us to go and shout at them and tell them that he hates them? Does God hate them? No. No, he doesn't. God has got a mercy and compassion. And so they're attempting to do God's work in completely the wrong way. Utterly misrepresenting and defaming God and destroying their witness. Second, number two, we rob God of his glory. How many times we jump out in front and we display the gifts that he's given us and we do the things that he's called us to do and because we do it our way and we, the way we do it, we rob God of his glory. We, when we rob people of the opportunity to give glory and praise to God and to see him work because we jump out in front because we seek to do it our way. Number three, quite simply, many times when we seek to do it our way, we just fail miserably. That's kind of the simplest of solutions. Sometimes God just lets us fall flat on our face. And sometimes that's his mercy right there, is putting it into it quick and fast and going, you know what? I'm just going to let you learn this lesson the hard way. And that's what we need sometimes, isn't it? And we're told in Scripture that uh, the Lord chastens those he loves, doesn't he? He lets, us, he lets us get a little bruising sometimes so we can learn the lesson, so that we can come back to him, so that we can depend on him, so we can walk with him. And then number four, as we see in this case here, sometimes in our effort to do things, uh, maybe even of good intention, do things for God, we end up producing the opposite effect. We end up producing a completely counter result. And in this case, we see that the events that are transpiring are going to lead to a whole other nation that is going to be from its inception completely at odds with the, with the, with the uh, children of God, with the, with the chosen people of God. 
there now, because of this one act of lack of faith, is going to give birth to Ishmael, from which we're told here is going to come this great nation that is, is at war with Israel today, that is striving and straining and struggling against Israel today because of one act of a human effort to interject into God's plan. One act of a lack of faith of sin and look at the devastating effects it still has. Thousands of years later. Amazing. Creating the opposite effect sometimes in our efforts to do things for God. Colossians 2 verse 6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all, and rule. he is the rule and authority. Amen. As we, as we seek to follow Christ, as he guides and leads us, we have to continue not only to do the things of him, but to do it his way and in his time. The two main things that Abram and Sarah are struggling with here is, is waiting on God and doing it his way. Philippians tells us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. It's his work, not our work. It's his work. I'm also reminded lastly of Gamaliel's advice to the council regarding the disciples in Acts chapter 5. If you remember what he said when they're, they were faced with this struggle of what do we do with these men? They were threatening to punish the, uh, Peter and the rest of the disciples for preaching Christ and they're threatening to throw them in prison, to flog them and all this stuff and they're telling them, you be quiet, you can't preach in that name. And what does Peter say? He says, well, uh, you go ahead and judge whether it's better to obey you or to obey God. We're going to obey God. And basically telling them, we're going to keep preaching. And they're like, what do we do to these guys? And they're all getting all riled up. Gamaliel comes in and he says, now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, and work is of men, it will come to nothing. But it, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest you be found even to fight against God. Amen. And that's, that's where I want to be. That's how I want to walk, is walk so much in God's lead and in his way that anyone coming against me isn't coming against me. They're coming against God. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We're more than conquerors in him, not in our effort, in him. And if we stay in that space, that's a pretty safe place to be. I don't know about you, but that's where I want to abide. So let's pick up in uh, Genesis 16, go back and pick up there in verse 6. It says, So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. It's kind of worth noting here, I think, how our sin, and many times our own guilt, causes us to mistreat others, doesn't it? Uh, suddenly we become suspicious of others. Suddenly we kind of superimpose our own guilt and our own, uh, really our own judgment onto someone else when we're the guilty one. And we see Sarah kind of reacting that way here. Verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? That's just classic. I love how God does that. You know, he did that same thing with Adam and Eve, didn't he? 
He knows all things. He knows where she came from. He knows where she's going. But what's he doing? He's given her a chance to communicate with him, to commune with him, to have a relationship with him. He's engaging with her. He's not just uh, super, he's just not superimposing his sovereignty on her. He's, he's a personal God. He's given her a chance to answer. He's, he's going, what are you up to? What's going on in your heart? Let's talk about this. I love how God deals with us according to our frailty, according to our humanness. Isn't that awesome about him? So where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself into her hand. So notice, God sends her right back into that tough situation. He sends her right back into a place where she's probably going to be oppressed. She's going to have trouble. She's going to have trials. It's not going to be easy. She just got done running from that. And God says, go back. And not only does he say, go back, but he tells her to submit, to submit to her. Wow. You know, God, does God ever ask us to do seem the th- things that seem unfair? Or ask us to endure things that seem not right or unfair to us? I know in this country, uh, there's laws that I don't agree with. There, you might have some you disagree with yourself. There are, there are decisions that are made that I may not agree with. But God has called us to submit, hasn't he? And until such time as we're demanded to directly disobey God's word and his counsel, the things that are inconveniencing us, the things we disagree with on principle or whatever else, God has called us to submit and to honor. And in submitting, we're told in his word, in submitting to those things, what are we really doing? Who are we submitting to? We're submitting to God himself, aren't we? That's obedience to him. Just as in the marriage relationship, when the wife, we're told in Ephesians, is to submit to the husband as to Christ, it's submission and obedience to God. It's not about the man being perfect, and it's not about our laws being perfect. It's not about the authorities being perfect. And in this situation, it wasn't perfect for Hagar, was it? It was a tough situation. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. But God said, go back and submit. I still have a plan. You're not done there yet. He tells her to go back. And we're told to do the same thing many times. We're told to fight the good fight. We're told that we're going to have trouble. God's not always going to call us to the path of least resistance. He's not always going to call us to the easy route or the one that feels good or the one that we think is right. Jesus gives us a warning in Mark 4 when he's telling the parable of the sower and the seed. And you remember that parable. And what does he tell us about the the seed that's thrown on the stones? It says, Likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness and then they have no root in themselves and so they endure only for a time and afterward when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake immediately they stumble. In other words, he's warning them and saying, listen, you're going to have trouble and persecution. It's going to come and if you're not ready for that, if you're not ready to walk through that because that's what I'm going to call you to, you're going to stumble. But Coloss- uh, Corinthians 4.12 says, we labor working with our own hands being reviled, we bless being persecuted, we endure. And in 2 Timothy 2.3, it says, Therefore, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so we know we're going to have tribulation. We're going to have troubles. God's going to many times tell us to walk right through the battle, not around it. And that's tough. That's hard. And, it's, and sometimes we're, we're, we're tempted to ask why. But we see that God is consistent. He's the same God that we're reading about from thousands of years ago and how he dealt with his people as, as he is today. And you notice here, one of the things I love about this scenario is that 
In commanding her to go back and submit, he follows it up immediately with a promise, doesn't he? He follows it up immediately with a promise. And God's commands to us are no different. I would encourage you that you'll notice that in everything God has asked us to do and in obey in and walk in, there are promises directly attached to those things. And here in Genesis 16, we see that same scenario. Um, it says, verse 10, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And so Ishmael, actually the name means God will hear, or God hears. So our promise, we're also, as I mentioned, there are many promises. I, uh, time would fail us to get into the promises of God that apply to the commands and the, and the instruction he gives us. But we are told in 2 Timothy Verse, chapter 2 that if we endure we shall also reign with him but we're also given a warning if we deny him he will also deny us picking up in verse 12 of Genesis 16 it says he goes on to give some not so good news he shall be a wild man and his hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren so again we're seeing this is ultimately the work of the flesh this is the working out of the results of reaping what humanly they have sown. Uh, the results are not going to be all that great in that sense. And we see this conflict continues today. We see not only the physical con conflict between the descendants of these two families, the, the conflict over territory and over land and over whose religion is better and all of these things, but we see this spiritual conflict between Christians and Jews and between uh, the Arab nations, specifically Islam. We see that Islam came out of that, that culture and those people. Um, you know, Muhammad, who claims to be um, a direct descendant of Ishmael, that may or may not be debata debatable, but that's where he's claiming his connection to and being the, the primary founder of Islam 2,600 years later from this point. And what does that religion teach? It teaches that God is not a father, that he has no son, and that Ishmael, not Isaac, is the heir with regard to the promises of God in the earth. It's the direct opposition to what God promised to fulfill in Abraham. This, this work of the flesh resulted in the direct opposition to the promises that he gave to Abraham and what ultimately he would fulfill. And they, in this one act, created this opposition. But you know, I believe it's the heart of God, as we see here in this passage, to have compassion and mercy towards those that are caught in the religion of Islam. We see that God had compassion towards Hagar and God throughout scripture has compassion. You know, and it's, I know that as his representatives, we are to have compassion and a heart of mercy. We are still to, to realize that those are people that are lost. They need to know Jesus Christ for who he really is and only in doing that will they be saved, will they be changed. And there can be no peace on this earth without Christ, without the Prince of Peace. Amen? We're not gonna fix it by just fighting with them and by imposing laws and, and policies and, and all of these things, there's a heart issue. And Christ is the only one who can fix that. And we have that answer. We have that solution. And we have to keep that as our first and foremost defense, as our first and foremost go-to. You know, when looking at this conflict, it's interesting to see how it's unfolding even today, how they're fighting over territory and land. And we see that throughout history, 
um, not only in this conflict, but in all nations and in all peoples. We see this cycle going on of, we see immigrants coming in to a land or a place, taking it over, and eventually you know, assuming the title of natives, and then eventually other immigrants come in, take over, and they assume that title. And we see the same thing here. God called Abram to a land that was inhabited. It wasn't empty, was it? The, Canaanite, the, the Canaanites were there. All these people were there. And God, through Abram and his descendants, would bring judgment on those people. But then we see uh, that even in recent history, there was a time where the Palestinians controlled most of what is, now, what is known as the land of Israel. And, and then Isra uh, Israel, out in the 1940s, we see them taking over and reclaiming that territory. And then through some laws and acts that were passed, we're able to regain status as a nation. We see all of these things, and we can fight. We see the fight is primarily over, well, who was here first? Who has claim to it? And, and, and based on all of these, and based on that type of an argument, but the reality is, it really doesn't matter who was there first or when, who had what. What it comes down to is who God says owns that land. And in scripture, God gave that land clearly to somebody. Who did he give it to? Abram and his descendants. So it doesn't matter who had it throughout history at what time. And the fact that people had it before Abraham was even there. God gave it to Abraham and his descendants. It's by God's decision, not by right of, of, of being there for some amount of time or conquering it at some given time. We have to remember that the reason that that is the land of Israel and that is that is his people's place is because he said it would be, because he gave it to them, because it's his command. And by no other reason, we can argue over all kinds of other logistics and policies and time frames, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to these promises here in Genesis that God gave them that land. So we're going to pick up in verse 13. And it says, She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well is called Ber Lahai Roy. Uh, observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar calls upon the name of the Lord, relating to the attribute of God that she just experienced. We, you know, uh, in here we see actually two uh, names of God's reference. We see the God who sees, and we see the God who hears. But you know, we have to remember that when Moses asked God. You know, what is your name? What should I tell the people of Israel your name is so they will know I'm from you? What did he say? I am. And we notice that the name of God referenced here is in direct relation to her experience with God, with his, with his sufficiency in a certain aspect of her life. And in this case, the God who hears and the God who sees. And that title, I am, really is in reference to that reality that God is everything we need. He is the all-encompassing solution and everything he is, his name is all of these things. Throughout scripture we see he is the all-sufficient one. We see that he is El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty in Genesis 17, El Elyon, God Most High, Adonai, he's our master, Jehovah Nisi, he's our banner, Jehovah Ra'ah, our shepherd, Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals. Jehovah Shema, the present Lord or the Lord who is here. Jehovah uh, Titzkanu, the God of our righteousness. El Olam, the everlasting God. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Jehovah Shalom, 
the Lord is our peace. We see these titles and names of God throughout the Old Testament that describe the fact that he is everything. He is all that we need. He meets our every need. He is all sufficiency. He is, I am. And so we see that he is the God who hears, or El Shema. In Genesis, in verse 11 here, it says, Behold, you're with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he says that he is the God who sees. And it's interesting, the name of this well comes from three root words, meaning actually well of the living, or living well, or even living water. And then the last word meaning my seer. And so it's a pretty cool reference to the living water, the one who's a source of life and the one who sees all. And thus the name of God, El Roy, meaning the God who sees. And Hagar's name is interesting, worth noting as well. We see that how God came and kind of rescued her in her moment of, of fear and, and, and fleeing from Sarai. Her name means a stranger or one that fears. According to Hitchcock's Bible Dictionary, the root of it uh, really speaks of someone who is fearful and someone who's a stranger, someone who's displaced. And God has mercy on her and on her son. Despite the reality of the situation and how it all came about, God has compassion towards her. Uh, but lastly, I uh, really want to talk about briefly, who is this angel? Who is this angel that came to her and talked to her? Um, it doesn't say a name, but I think we have some clues. First of all, we see here that it says, and when he's speaking to Hagar, he says, I will multiply your descendants. He speaks with direct authority, whoever this angel is. He says, I'm going to do something. And he says, I will multiply your descendants. And we also notice in verse 13, Hagar speaks of seeing God himself. He who sees and hears her. And it seems to indicate, and you'll notice in your Bible, it's probably capitalized because it's most commonly believed that this was God himself, Jesus Christ himself, appearing to Hagar and, and, and meeting her personally and letting her know that she is cared for and loved by him, that he has a plan for her and for her descendants, that he's still going to take care of her, but it, that it was God himself, Jesus, who appeared to her. And so in reading on, in verse 15 it says, So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar, Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So now, 11 years after having first received the promise in chapter 12. And it's clear here that Hagar obviously advised Abram of her encounter with God. Because Abram named the son Ishmael. The name that God would say he would be named. And so... Abram received that. Abram heeded what uh, Hagar shared with him and named the boy Ishmael, the God, who, the God who sees, the God who hears. And so looking at this, I want to tie this into some of the New Testament scriptures that talk about the symbolism here. In Galatians 4, if you want to join me, Galatians 4, verse 21, tells us a little more insight as to the spiritual example that we can learn from this scenario we're reading about here in Genesis 16. Galatians 4.21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. 
Then skipping down to verse 27, as for, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And in verse 1 of chapter 5 it says, For it, or it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And so he, gives, he ties in the spiritual reality of this situation that there's this representation of the work of the flesh and of the law and this attempt to fulfill God's plan and purpose through human effort and what a failure and, a, and ultimately what a slavery that is because it's something you'll never successfully accomplish. And then the example of what came through the son of promise, ultimately Christ, who came to bring us freedom, who set us free from that slavery, from that bondage, from, that, from this bondage of human effort, the, the effort of the law and this attempt to please God on our own ability that we can never do. So he's encouraging them here in Galatians to, to walk as a son of the, free, of the free woman, to walk in the freedom of Christ who has set us free from that slavery. And then lastly, I just want to encourage and leave you all with this because as we see here in this scenario with Abram and Sarai, how they struggled in holding fast the promises of God. They struggled with God's timing in fulfilling those things in their life. And we have similar struggles, don't we? We have similar situations that we deal with. But we're given a promise in Isaiah 40 that really, I think, speaks to this situation for us. And this is God speaking. He says, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number and calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. You ever feel that way? You feel like God just kind of missed you? Like he doesn't see what you're struggling with or what you're dealing with? He's saying, why do you say that? Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint." Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in Abram and Sarai's life and how you deal, dealt with them in such great mercy, how you persevered with them and how you persevere with us. And I pray that these truths would take hold in our hearts and in our minds. May we share your love and compassion with those around us who need it. Be patient and long-suffering with one another. And most of all, to wait patiently on your promises and to follow your commands, knowing that they are tied to those promises. Lord, that we would see past the desire to do things our way to the reality that your way is always best. 
And so, Lord, we commit this evening and the rest of our fellowship to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.